Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Richards, and today I have three guests on the show, which I'm really excited to speak to. They are Dr. Rachel Ann Dunn, Professor Paul Mahag, and Dr. Victoria Roper. They're the editors of a great new book called What is Legal Education for? Reassessing the Purposes of Early 21st Century Learning and Law Schools. So it's a really important topic for all of us who teach in law schools, who employ lawyers, um, and anyone thinking of going to law schools. So it's going to be a great discussion today. And their book was published in by Rutledge in 2022. So without further ado, I'm going to let my guests tell tell you all a little bit more about themselves um, and how they came to write the book. Who would like um, to get I'll, started, Rachel? Do you want to get, get us yeah, going? Yeah, I'll start. So um, I'm at Leeds Beckett University. I oversee all of our pro bono and employability activities. So that includes things like the law clinic and our partnership with Support Through Court, but also enhancing employability opportunities for our students. I was at Northumbria for all of my adult life before I moved to Leeds Beckett, um, where I worked with Victoria. And I did my PhD there, which was in clinical legal education and just immersed myself um, in that world. So that's me in a nutshell. Thank you so much. Um, Paul, how about you? Can you tell me about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm a a professor uh, working at Osgood Hall Uh, law school in Osgood uh, professional development um, end of the law school which is in Toronto and Ontario Canada. Um, I'm also part-time at Newcastle Law School as well in England and um, basically what I do these days since I've kind of semi-retired is um, work on projects um, with a number of people across law schools um, and other institutions as well uh, largely to do, but not always, with uh, digital education methods um, and also looking at um, regulation as well, um, regulation of legal education across law schools. Um, and um, I think I've always had an interest in in education. Uh, I trained as an adult educator way back in the 1980s, seems like 1880s now. Um, and uh, basically, um, when I had my when I took my law degree at Glasgow University, I found my vocation there because it was such a dismal experience as a student going through that um, two-year graduate um, degree that I thought, gosh, you know, there's got to be a better way of doing legal education than this. Um, and that's what I spent my career basically um, doing, writing about it, researching it, doing it, um, and. Um, yeah, that about sums up my um, my career. Victoria? Thank you. Um, so I'm at Northumbria University. I, I actually um, started my career in practice as a corporate solicitor. And um, I moved to Northumbria and into academia about 10 years ago. So um, perhaps somewhat unsurprisingly, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in professional legal education, 
um, but, but legal education generally. I um, uh, I head up our postgraduate uh, program offering, so that's kind of my, my management role at, at Northumbria as well as teaching, um, and I lead our legal education and professional skills research group as well. So. Um, yeah, very uh, kind of interested in all aspects of um, legal education. I, I would like to say I had quite a, I quite enjoyed my undergraduate uh, law degree. So um, it didn't, it didn't entirely put me off. Um, but of course, uh, it's always um, good to look for ways to to improve and, and challenge and, and strive for, um, you know, to make it the best educational experience for students as possible. Thank you. Um, and it's great to meet you all and great to have you on the show. Um, you've all you've got quite diverse backgrounds. So I'm really interested to know how you came to bring this collection together, because it is quite an unusual book. You know, it's sort of it's called What is Legal Education For? But then it, um, it it's inspired by another book. So perhaps you can tell me a little bit more about that. How did you come to write this book together? Rachel, I think you need to, it was your idea initially, <laughs> I think, so you should you should explain the background. It, in part, um, I'm not going to take all the credit for it, but I think, um, so this feels like a very long time ago now, especially because it was pre-COVID, but in is it 2018, Victoria, we put in a bid um, with the Modern Law Review for their seminar series to... Um, to put on a seminar about legal education and at the time there was a lot going on you know LETR uh, report which Paul worked on had um, had been released and the SRA were introducing the idea of the SQE and it felt like legal education was kind of at a crossroads and there was a lot of uncertainty so Victoria and I were like well let's put in a bid for this modern law review seminar series to bring loads of people together to talk about you know where is legal education going and there was there was lots going on in the literature at the time so we basically um picked our I like to call them academic crushes of people that we um liked their work and thought they would be interesting and Paul was one of those people he was one of our keynotes um and the seminar was amazing and I think what was really nice is that it attracted a lot of people that we didn't usually or hadn't previously met at conferences and Victoria and I at the time were doing a lot of clinical legal education focused work and this was more general legal education so it brought together a, a really varying group of people with different perspectives and different experiences and then off the back of that we we were like we just want to make this into a book really and asked Paul to help us because he was so experienced um, with bringing together edited collections. In terms of books I don't feel like we can um, actually really take the full credit for that because for the MLR um, seminar we were working with colleagues from Nottingham was it Victoria? Yeah um, and it was the idea of someone there of you know well we, we have this books book from the 90s that was also looking at what is the purpose of ed legal education and you know should we frame the seminar around that to have a discussion of what has actually changed from those earlier discussions and that's kind of where the books came into it all really so yeah in a nutshell it was the work of a lot of people that got us to this stage. So then I want to pick up on something that you just said um, you know thinking about what what is legal education for in the 90s until now? 
I'm wondering if you can tell me about some of the changes in legal education since the 90s, since that original book by Peter Burks was written, to um, to the work that you're all doing now and the work in this book. Yeah, I might pass this over to Paul, but I think um, reading books, so that was the first time I think I'd actually sat down and read books as edited collection from start to finish in one go. And legal education in the 90s seems quite alien now to the legal education landscape that we are looking at and all of the changes. Um, But there was a lot in books as well, um, which I'll let Paul talk about, that hints towards the future. And we're seeing some of Burke's predictions coming to light now. So that was really interesting. Um, But Paul, you're you're kind of more the Burke's expert, if you want to talk about the 90s. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, perhaps um, the the one the one amongst the three of us that re- that remembers the 1990s quite well, actually. So um, basically, I do remember uh, coming across Burke's uh, in a secondhand bookshop in Glasgow called Voltaire and Rousseau, um, a kind of black um, A4 um, softback publication. It, I was really interested in it because. I was just starting out then. I've been four years into a career um, in a new university in um, Glasgow called Glasgow Caledonian. And I was really looking for uh, statements of what legal education was about, um, theory, methodology, and so on. And so um, I seized on Burke's and I thought, gosh, this is this is interesting. But the more I read it, the more dissatisfied um, I became by the book. Um, I found it absorbing, uh, particularly the chapters by um, Peter Goodrich and a couple of others. Um, But I found it talking, well, first of all, it talked largely about English um, legal education. And of course, I'm, as you can hear, uh, a Scot coming from a Scottish um, tradition of of legal education and, and law. In a mixed jurisdiction, so um, the the focus seemed to be uh, largely towards um, the English jurisdiction, um, rather than taking into account, say, for example, um, the varieties in Wales, Northern Ireland, uh, or or Scotland. Um, but I think um, what struck me was that um, there was a a focus on things that really mattered, such as um, how the law school becomes a commercial corporation, um, uh, private funding in the form of fee-paying postgraduate programmes, that sort of thing, um, and the massification, the corporatization of higher education generally. It seemed, his book seemed to be feeding in and exploring that, and I found that uh, enormously helpful. Um, but as as things moved on, and I'm kind of thinking about the the new millennium and so on, it, it it became clear whenever I revisited the book, just kind of leafing through it again, that he was missing a lot of things as well. Um, and um, for example, the role of well-being or emotion or affect, um, status of gender, ethnicity, um, relation of legal education to education itself in other places and especially other times. You know, it was like... Um, Sometimes it was as if uh, there had been no history of legal education at all. 
um, which I think is absolutely vital for a discipline to flourish, that we have some kind of a knowledge about our own, uh, our own, um, uh, our, our own disciplines. Um, also, um, the jurisdictional differentials um, as well, because um, you, you can't just focus on England, you've got to look at Europe as well. You, you, uh, you really have to um, take the, the huge example of, of uh, legal education in the USA, for example. Um, the way that clinic, to, to, um, to touch on what Rachel was saying earlier, the way that clinic in the USA is strikingly different from the way that it's used and theorised about um, in the UK. So there was lots there that um, I felt I was dissatisfied about um, in terms of uh, Burks's book. And yet, um, as Rachel has said, Burks is a really important book, um, the more so as, as time grew on. It came about almost accidentally um, uh, through Burks's own uh, attempts to influence the whole kind of legal educational debate around ACLEC. Um, and, um, uh, but it grew in its influence, and I think it grew in its influence because it was a statement of liberal law school values. And those values, it seemed to me, again, to be insufficient, necessary, but, but uh, not, not sufficient to describe the whole of the law school experiences, um, either for students or, or for staff. So in a sense, I was drawn to Burks as well. And when this seminar came up, I thought, gosh, what a brilliant idea um, to once celebrate and critique uh, Burks's achievement in bringing together those authors to provide a statement of legal education, which um, had verve, um, but was insufficient, as it were, um, to, to answer the question that was the title of the book. That's really fascinating. Um, you know, you've brought so much up um, that I really want to talk about, you know, and a lot of the chapters in your book do talk about, you know, these sort of gaps in Burke's work and they address these sorts of things like the liberal law school values and what it actually means in practice, you know, who is represented, who is not represented. And so it was so welcome to read some of the different chapters, you know, talking about um ethnicity, race, um, colonialism in the law curriculum, gender, um, and the mm. way that different students experience um, the law school depending on their own backgrounds and, you know, either, you know, these sort of values of the law school they take with them or they sort of learn to adapt. Um, and we'll get on to those in just a moment. One thing you said first in your response, though, was talking about, you know, Burke's recognising in societies, you know, the sort of commercialization and corporatization of higher education. And so my question then is um, talking about now the sort of the, the societies and the communities that law schools operate in now. I'm wondering if you can comment just on that, especially with what you've just said. Yeah. That's a really big Rachel question. Victoria. <laughs> I think maybe Paul would have a slightly more internationalized view of this I mean Victoria and I will obviously be coming at this from a more English perspective although saying that obviously Margaret Thornton is from Australia and one of the reasons why we wanted her to contribute is because reading her work I think really resonates with the experience that a lot of people are having in higher education at the moment um, 
you know whether you agree with her approach to that or not we can see a lot more commercialization of higher education generally and the pressures of that being put back onto academics and that was quite a focus I think both during the seminar um, but also during the chapters as well in terms of that changing landscape Victoria I don't know if you want to comment on that as well yeah no I I would agree with that Um, and I suppose what um, so Thornton writes from that Australian perspective but it's certainly that is something felt by academics I think generally in in other jurisdictions so um, and I remember that very clearly coming through in the seminar that we had Um, and you know you know maybe we'll we'll touch on this elsewhere in the discussions but then kind of at the end of the seminar and hopefully this comes through in the book also kind of recognizing um, the you know the fact that we as um, legal educators can do things within those those pressures that are coming um, to try and help our students and provide a, a really excellent learning environment so although um sometimes some of the the discussion in the book or the seminar was was slightly negative we were I suppose looking to find ways of of working positively within um you know the the systems that we're working in currently yeah and I think Paul might I don't know like like Paul said he has had a bit of a longer career than me in Victoria but it felt very fast these changes coming at us in higher education um I think particularly in law where you know it was never it was never a big requirement to have a PhD to be an academic or publish a lot because it 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 could also be a very vocational subject um so the changes felt like they happened very fast and people had to adjust to the new higher education landscape very quickly but I don't, I don't know, Paul, maybe you've got a different perspective yeah. on that. And obviously... No, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and and I, I mean, having worked abroad in um, Hong Kong, Australia, and most recently in Canada, um, I can see variations of that happening um, in different, in radically different jurisdictions. So that the, the problems seem to be remarkably similar but what's really interesting is that the local solutions in each jurisdiction tend to be um, different uh, and um, we can see that happening largely because the the not only the economic conditions but also um, the um, the general kind of cultural historical traditions are different as well if you look for example at the difficulties um, um, that um, professional legal education has had in Hong Kong recently. Mm-hmm. You can trace that to the relationship between uh, the Law Society of Hong Kong um, and uh, the uh, largely three, although there may soon be more, law schools uh, who are uh, involved in professional legal education there. And if we look in detail at the Law Society, we begin to see a lot of the really interesting um political aspects there of the relationship between the PRC and Hong Kong itself, which has been playing out, of course, in the last um, five years or so in uh, in so many um, tragic ways uh, within Hong Kong. 
the place of law and the rule of law, democracy, these are all incredibly powerful issues for law schools there. And in a sense, the corporatization, the commercialization of law school takes a back seat to those sorts of issues uh, in that jurisdiction, although it's still happening there too. But the commercialization, the corporatization is a much larger, um, a much, I would say, I argue, much more sinister form of corporatization that's, that's feeding through the political process there. But if we take um, kind of... Um, what we've been going through in the last, say, 15 years or so, what Rachel was doing about the pace of things happening is exactly right. Uh, I mean, we've, uh, 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 in a sense, neoliberalism has been growing pace um, ever faster. We can see it in the global financial crisis, um, Brexit. Uh, we can see it in uh, fresh regulatory interventions from in the SRA. I'm talking about England now itself. But the same is true of most jurisdictions. The, the pace and the, uh, the number of regulatory interventions into legal into law schools and legal education has substantially increased um, uh, to the extent that I think that uh, law schools really need to take a much more positive and stronger attitude um, towards that, and also creative and inventive um, attitude towards that. I mean, we could see that in the pandemic, the growing environmental crises, um, the transformative effects of digital upon whole industries, which for a long time, uh, law schools simply refused to accept was going to uh, was going to affect them. And lo and behold, in the last what, six months, we have had the AI revolution, which is actually a long time brewing, but you know is is bursting upon the scene and and uh, threatening to transform in so many ways uh, the deep forms of teaching and learning that happen in our law schools. So in a sense, um, these changes are happening very, very quickly. Um, and I think that uh, something like a re-evaluation of Burke's was long overdue. Um, and I would argue that what we need actually is because change is a constant now in the way that it never used to be in the, the post-World War II, <laughs> excuse me, um, uh, law school, um, I think we, we need to be re-evaluating ourselves and um, uh, reflecting upon ourselves and what we do, how we do things in law schools um, much more much more frequently, as it were. You know, it, I mean, to take a military metaphor, um, what we need is, is, is almost like a kind of a devolution to, uh, to battlefield commanders rather than the college, as it were, high up and all sorts of messages having to go up the military hierarchy to come back down again with a decision. We need decision cycles that are made much faster um, and based on um, information that we have at our fingertips. And uh, nobody knows better what happens in legal education than we do our students. Uh, and uh, staff at, uh, at, at universities and other institutions. Um, and it's up to us really to try and take control of that situation much more. And I think uh, that's one of the kind of calls to arms, as it were, that we have um, in our book, is that we need, to, we need to take control of our situation much more than we have hitherto.
Yeah, that's really interesting. And it sort of provides a leaping off point to the sort of first substantive chapter in the book, actually, what you've just said, talking about, um, and that chapter's titled The Unitary Idea of the Law School and Other Problems When Defining Problems in Legal Education. Now, the two authors there, Elaine Hall and Samantha Rasaya, um, they talk about the problem and the concern of defining problems in legal education from three different perspectives. And you just mentioned this now. So those being students, law teachers and the law education researcher. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about this chapter and what we can learn um, in the way that we define legal problems in legal education. Uh, Rachel, do you want to lead off? Yeah, on that? I, think, I think that's one of the complexities of the law school there's so many key players in the operation of it you know yes students most definitely and I think any good legal educator would say that the student is at the heart of that law school and, and the heart of the the aims and the goals but then there is also the stuff in the teaching stuff there's the stuff in the research stuff you have stuff that combine those but then in law you know, not all disciplines have this. We also have the pressures from our regulating bodies and any changes that come through from that and how that compares and complements the university's regulations and demands as well. So it's it's a really complex system that you have to navigate and it's you are wearing a lot of different hats at a lot of different times and this I think this is one of the difficulties some sometimes in terms of thinking about that neoliberalism and, and that development um and the commercialization of higher education is that sometimes you want to do things that are best for your students, but they might not see that they're the best for them, but that's what's come out of research or that's what's being told to you you know by employees for example of what kind of skills they want from those students and then trying to appease the students but also keep them happy because that's kind of what we have to do now can be a really difficult balance to strike and not something that I experienced as a student you know it was kind of well this is the way it is and that's the way we're going so there's lots of different hats I think now that academics have to wear compared to you know historically what law teachers were doing I think um just to add I think um Professor Hall comes at it from quite an interesting perspective as well because she is someone that um she calls a you know she talks about being a, a, a an outsider to a certain extent because actually she doesn't have a background in um in the law or and originally started out as a as an educator but not a specific legal educator so I think um the perspective of of her writing with um uh Samantha who's a who's a at the time was a PhD student um now a doctor um is is quite an interesting one as well so I think that chapter is is very interesting in terms of its um its perspectives um and, and its views in that extent yeah and I think just off that Victoria so Elaine Hall is at Northern Bree University. She was my PhD supervisor and obviously Victoria still works with her. And when she came to Northern Bree and was helping to advance our research profile as a school, she would often say, you know, well, she would, she would question our perceptions of the law a lot. 
and we would never question it we, we would just kind of be like well that's what the law says so that's just what we do and she's like oh I'm working with people here who kind of just do what they're told in the remits and if that law changes then they go with that legal change but until then and I think that was nice and the rise of research has allowed legal educators to think more outside the box and be more inventive instead of just following the rules all the time I don't know maybe that's how I feel anyway um I think maybe my perspective on it is, is slightly slightly different for that I thought what Professor Hall did was say why do you do this no why did why do you teach it like that why do you assess it like that why um and uh you know because I think I think you're right Rachel you tend to do things and if that's the way you were taught and that's the way they've always been done um you don't always question it but I think that's the advantage of someone coming in as as an outsider but with an educational background to, to to query that I suppose yeah, definitely. And maybe that's why with the changes the SRA have made with kind of less regulation of legal education, everyone's gone, oh, right. OK, we can do things now, which is very strange where, well, yes, Research Indeed. Victoria and I do. And at the moment, isn't necessarily suggesting that, but there is that opportunity to do it, which there hasn't been for a very long time. And the law school response to that is going to be quite interesting. This is probably a good yeah. time. Oh, sorry, Go, carry on, Paul. No, I was just going to make a point that, mm. that what I really liked about this chapter was that it was um, it was looking at a relatively um, unexplored area uh, of historical legal education. Uh, and um, I've done the same sort of stuff in uh, the way that glossators um embodied, represented, and transmitted the whole idea of law in the um in the early years of the of the university in the um 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. And what I liked about Elaine's uh, and Samantha's chapter was that it was uh, at once an exploration of that, but also um looking at the law school, the modern law school in the light of this very early law school. And I think that uh, we need much more of that um, in our, uh, uh, as we come to an understanding of the historical dimensions um, of law schools, not just in the sense that, oh, this is this is the historical um, description that we have here, but also in an exploration of the materialities of legal education in the past, because what you do and how you do it um, are inextricably um, combined in education generally. So the what and the how are equally important. Most people, though, when they're looking at things, they think, oh, it's the what that's important, you know, the, the content of the curriculum. No, it's how you do things in the curriculum that matter. And so looking at how, how students learned, um, say, seven, eight, nine or more centuries ago is something that is quite fascinating to have a look at how constrained in lots of ways um, we uh, we are when we are teaching and learning in the modern period, as it were. So then my next question is, what are law teachers for? And this is the title of the next chapter. It's by Maribel Canto-Lopez. The full title is, what are law teachers for? 
finding ways to introduce law teachers' voices through the TEF in the ever-changing higher education sector in England. I think this feeds nicely into some of the things you've just been talking about. Yeah, I think uh, I think I was going to come in on this one. So, um, I mean, one of the things I would I would I think we've touched on it already is that we tried to get a lot of different perspectives um, in in the book, and um, I think we've got we've got different perspectives. Although there's 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 key themes coming through, um, but also actually, you know, and you'll note there's no conclusion where we've tried to. Um, to, get, to give that because actually we ask a lot of questions and we explore those questions um, but these are questions that are, are difficult to answer aren't they and to give definitive answers for but um, Maribel's chapter is is talking about the, the the role that law teachers should be playing and I suppose linking into the call to arms point that that yeah. Paul um, made that we need to be um, as far as possible trying to um, make our voices heard and and Maribel's chapter this links into what we were talking about um, you know the the corporatization of law schools and um, top-down initiatives being being imposed which impact our our kind of um potentially our day-to-day so it focuses on the teaching excellence um framework um which um you know works on metrics things like um the national student survey and, and, and other metrics um and Maribel is really um, talking about that that shift to see students as consumers, and um, you know, in Maribel's view, and which is which is echoed uh, with with many others as well, the the harmful effects of that. But what I like about um, this chapter is that whilst it acknowledges the, the, those issues and and the, these ideas that things are things are being dictated to us by the managerias, you know, rather than the people who are on the ground teaching, who understand, you know, and Paul said, we are the ones that really understand our, our jobs, you know, we're the ones teaching. Um, but she makes some, I think, some good suggestions for how um, we need to make our voices heard and really um, I suppose that the, the, the TEF seems here to stay. So how we can get more involved um, in a variety of different ways to um, to try to um, you know, Im- improve uh, the system that we find ourselves in today. Yeah, and Chloe Wallace in her chapter, she offers a really interesting perspective on this point of what law schools should be doing. Um, I just want to quote. It's it's quite uh, it's sort of. T- brings back a little bit to Paul's, some things he said before about, you know, the impact of corporatization in different jurisdictions, for example, Hong Kong, Canada, Australia, the UK. Um, She takes a sort of global perspective in her chapter, which is titled Beyond the Jurisdiction, Law Schools, the LLB and Global Education. And she writes that all law schools are and should be seeking to take a global view. In an interconnected world where technology of all types brings us closer together and where destructive populist politics at times seeks to push us further apart, one of the things that law schools should be for is the building of international connections and global citizens. However, despite much discussion of the necessity of an internationalised curriculum, most undergraduate curricula at law schools in England and Wales remain predominantly and determinately focused on the single jurisdiction of England and Wales. 
So I think you mentioned this a bit before, Paul, this sort of focus, it's almost an inward focus, one could argue, um, in the UK. Um, what should British law schools be doing in this respect? Oh, um, in my view, um, mm. we should be resisting the hegemony of private law and we should much more um, be open, porous to exactly those sorts of issues that Chloe is talking about there. Um, you can uh, we, we can see examples of that kind of internationalisation happening. <clears throat> Um, and it's not just a, a matter of kind of constructing a dessert trolley, as it were, you know, of little courses here and all the rest of it, or oh, options, because the core remains stolidly, you know, the jurisdiction. If you look at something like McGill's transsystemic um, curriculum, where civil and common law are brought together, again, not as options, but effectively um, as uh, things that are taught and learned at a really deep level in the same way. So there's no separation out. It's an attempt really to bring together, to fuse um, through jurisdictional structures, infrastructures as well. It's a hugely ambitious um, project, still ongoing, has been adapted um, elsewhere. Um, at ANU, for example, Australian National University where I worked, what we tried to do there was a kind of like a, a, a cross, um, cross-disciplinary fusion, as it were. So we took problem-based learning, which, of course, York University in England um, has as, as the basis of its curriculum. But what we wanted to do was to fuse problem-based learning with technology entirely online um, and also uh, focus on uh, Australian law, but within a wider context. So again, we're bringing together things and fusing them at a deep level within the curriculum. Um, and I think Chloe's point about internationalization is um, absolutely right. We can see that at the hard point where, for example, foreign-based lawyers in one jurisdiction will want to move over mm -hmm. um, and become qualified in another well how, how do they do that um uh, we can see regulators um striving to kind of um to, to to think about this and indeed qlts in england the qualifying lawyers transfer scheme um was a really good example of them trying to um think about the the deep issues that are are um there to be solved rather than the QLTT, which is effectively a paper and pencil test um, on the reserved areas, you know, and, and really proved nothing about the capabilities um, of uh, the lawyers who were coming into the jurisdiction and actually didn't really fulfill the public interest role that a regulator has. So QLTS was a good uh, intervention there, in my humble view. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the QLTS was actually, as one of the successful interventions by the SRA, continued in its form as the SQE, SQE. Um, and I think that was a really bad move in so many ways and something that we didn't actually uh, advocate in. In fact, we advocated against in uh, the Legal Education Training Review. But nevertheless, what you have there is a kind of like an opening out, as it were, 
um, to international lawyers. Um, and I think it's it's quite interesting here. Again, this this shows how adjacent legal education and law schools are, even though they may not know it, to the um, to the neoliberal establishment. In the global financial crisis, um, 2008-9, um, a lot of law firms uh, in London had employed lawyers um, who were who who were not qualified to practice as um, solicitors. And they were working on things like mergers, acquisitions, financial instruments, and such like. Well, of course, um, when when the, the, the crisis hit, um, they had no role, basically, to play. And uh, they were being laid off. They needed to qualify solicitors. And that that was when the SRA suddenly dis uh, discovered that, I think it was in 2009, something like 20% of entrants into the legal profession were coming through that route. So in a sense, what they had to do was think internationally. What are we doing about this? Um, in a way that they really never had had to do that before. Conversely, you have the same sort of situation in Ireland at the moment. Through Brexit happening, we have um, Irish law schools as being a major, the major, I think Cyprus is the only other one, um, common law influence in, uh, in Europe. Um, and of course, we had originally, when Brexit happened, uh, we had law firms seeking uh, some kind of a foothold in, in the jurisdiction of Ireland in order still to service their clients in uh, Frankfurt, Paris, wherever. Um, that has now since morphed. But I think it's really interesting that since Brexit happening, common law legal education in, in Ireland is going to much reduce, um, is, is going to in many respects fade away. And I think that the whole power uh, and the direction of Irish legal education, both for students and for uh, professionals in the future, will be much more civilian um, in its focus, simply because that is where um, the power, uh, the economy um, and the culture lies in their future. That's really interesting to sort of think about these issues through this lens and the sort of more training solicitors. Um, of course, not everyone going to law school will become a solicitor, but thinking about, you know, skills being transferable and whether their experience is inward looking or outward looking um, and cross sort of jurisdictional approaches. Um, mm. and, and perhaps this is one of to use your words, the deep issues to be solved um, in terms of legal education. Um, my next question, it relates to the next two chapters in the book. Um, again, this theme of deep issues to be solved. So the first one is about, um, it's titled Reinventing Possibility, a reflection on law, race and decolonial discourse in legal education. So the authors here, and I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce the names, but perhaps you can assist me. Um, they, it's... Baluk Ifeola Adebesi and Katie Bales. So they argue that systemic racism remains prevalent within our higher education institutions, which privilege patriarchal, middle-class and Eurocentric epistemologies over other cultural, political and class-based perspectives and knowledge systems. So decolonialising the curriculum is quite a hot topic at the moment, um, especially in legal education. What, can you, what does this chapter offer in this space? Yeah. So I 
I think this is one of the more beautiful chapters in a way in the book in, in the book and I think Fluke and Katie just explained it so well um I know Paul was familiar with the area before but for me this was a great education reading this chapter and it, it really was such a pleasure to read um I think we should say as well shouldn't we Rachel that actually um this is something that was kind of added to the book because we, yeah. we didn't initially um have a chapter on this and we thought things obviously moved mm-hmm. on from the, the time we had our seminar and, and invited mm-hmm. people to put abstracts forward for um forward for, for, for chapters so I think uh, there was a recognition that this was really important to have something mm-hmm. on here and, and and the the authors were asked to contribute um in the same way as I was reflecting when you know looking over some things for this that if we were if we were doing the book now there might be additional you know an additional chapter yeah. might add in. yeah definitely and thing, things are moving really fast and and you're right I think you know the decolonization of the curriculum is is a to borrow your phrase a hot topic right now and it's it's something that is being discussed a lot and I think race generally in legal practice and legal education and in society um is very much more at the forefront but I think what's really great about Katie and Fluke's chapter is that they they give practical examples of how they've incorporated this into modules on their curriculum um so, so you know they have a, a race in the law module they have rich rich law poor law and what they highlight is you know their rich law poor law module is that race is connected to poverty as well and when you look at the fact that the law is there to serve a capitalist gain there will always be oppression of certain groups of people and that that can be connected um but they give some good examples but i think the, the main message of their chapter is you know it's it's great it's great to have these modules to teach students about these issues and to bring in different perspectives into the law curriculum but actually that's not the end goal here the end goal is for the whole program to address these systemic issues within the law that is a very historical you know this isn't the issues of race within the laws it's not a recent um, development this has been going on for hundreds of years and we don't teach students about that and we should be teaching students about that not just in optional modules but also you know land law and how land has been taken from indigenous people and the impact that that has on the law now in terms of immigration etc so yeah I think this this chapter it goes into a lot more depth than just oh let's decolonize the curriculum mm. and this is how you do it. it it's it's a great education for anyone and a really good starting point I think for anyone who wants to learn more about it and um they, they make the point don't they that actually you you might have expected some some I mean this is clearly a long time before Black Lives Matter movement, but you might have expected at least some acknowledgement in books about some, some of these tensions and actually they, they aren't there. And I think, um, you know, that it is a, we have, you know, encouraged our authors to yeah. where they think it's relevant to critique um, the book's text and what they think is mm-hmm. missing and, and, sh- and could have reasonably been expected at the time to have been in there. Yeah, and I think, that that was actually a bit of an education for me because that chapter so when 
we contacted Feluca and Katie and said, you know, we really want a chapter on race. Would you be willing to write it? And they were so gracious with that. And I said, you know, we're framing it around this books edited collection from the 90s. And it's kind of a, a update or a reimagining of that. And I didn't really think about it. And they came back and they were like, there's not really anyone of colour who wrote on this wrote for this book and it was the same with um Jess and Doug's chapter they're like there's no women who contributed to this book and I don't think I'd ever actually thought about that when I was reading books and I was like actually this is yeah there's quite a lot of narrow perspectives so no wonder there wasn't discussions Mm -hmm. about gender and no wonder there wasn't discussions really about race because there was nobody I think Katie and Fluke they say that in their chapter you know it's it's mainly written by men who are racialized as white so they're obviously going to come at it from their own experiences and perspectives and that's why this is missing so and I don't that's not necessarily a criticism of books I think it's a product of its time in the 90s but I think that's one of the things that I'm really proud of in terms of our book now Yeah, and as you mentioned, Jessica Guthrie and Doug Morrison offer a gender and class perspective of legal education. Can you talk more to this point? I think, uh, I'll I'll let Vicky go, but I think uh, class is the the other new hot topic at the moment in terms of academia. Yeah, and I I mean, I really, really love this chapter as well. And I think that um, it, it, I mean, it it acknowledges that this is actually an underwritten about area. Um, And I, I, completely agree with that and I think when we often talk about um, you know we'll talk about about race and um, various things but perhaps this is this really kind of made me think and made me think about um, you know because they reflect on their own experience uh, experiences Um, so I think that um, this chapter again it it adds something that and again something that wasn't there in in books which they which they acknowledge Um, and they they talk about their own experience I suppose there's a I think our authors would probably all agree that, you know, we believe that law school should be for everyone, regardless of, of, of race or class or gender, et cetera, or, or, or any um, other um, characteristic. But I think this chapter, as well as other chapters, ac- acknowledges that, um, you know, there are still challenges and there is still work to do in making sure that that it's not just about universities being as inclusive as possible, but also there is, um, you know, not everyone goes into the the, the legal profession, but there are challenges in the profession, aren't they, that we see um, as well in terms of um, in terms of both class and class and gender and and, and other characteristics as well. So um, I I think this was a really thought provoking chapter. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, I hope our readers when reading this chapter, as I did, it will it will make them reflect on their own experiences of, of law school or, or teaching in law school now um, and about this this fundamental question of who are law schools for. Yeah, and I think that's a really important key takeaway from the book, this idea of being reflective as a student, but especially reflective practice um, in thinking about who are law schools for and what are we doing as educators in the law classroom? Um, Who are we educating? I want to skip ahead a little bit to your chapter, Paul, Um, your chapter on 
Originary Intimacy, a Thought Experiment in Jurisprudential Legal Education Inquiry. Now, you write about the status of legal education as a jurisprudential activity. Can you tell me a little bit what you mean by this and tell me tell me about your chapter? Yeah, um, well, um, it, quite a personal chapter in some ways. Mm. It was uh, based on my discovery, as it were, of Burke's, uh, as I said, in, in Voltaire and Russell, the secondhand bookshop in Glasgow. Um, but it was also uh, kind of um, thinking about it within a jurisprudential context. I've always thought of coming from an arts background. Um, my uh, doctorate was in uh, aesthetics, philosophy and literature. Um, I've always seen law uh, as, as um, a jurisprudential activity, which is, uh, you know, seemingly uh, obvious. Um, but it seemed to me also that legal education was a jurisprudential activity as well, because it's about how we come to know things. It's about epistemology. It's about how we come to frame and reframe things within the context of law. <clears throat> and it seemed to me that uh, legal education had become a shadow of itself. The more I understood about uh, the history of legal education, um, that in a sense it had become divorced in the modern period from jurisprudential analysis. Uh, uh, if you look at histories or um, textbooks of jurisprudence, legal education hardly ever um, figures um, as a topic worthy of analysis. And yet I thought, gosh, you know, what, what better subject for analysis in jurisprudence um, than that? And in a sense, this chapter, Originary Intimacy, was part of a kind of like a two, two chapter um, analysis of what was going on there, why it came about. Um, I've mentioned the Glossators. Um, a lot of their work um, in the early um, in the early years of the second millennium was was basically to try and understand what the Justinianic codes and also the codes of canon law as well were all about. Um, and the way that they did that was to take, amongst other um, instruments and tools, glosses in which they they basically um, understood and commented upon um, what the Justinianic text, to take an example, was saying, um, upon which would then others comment and so on. Um, and so that kind of layer upon layer of commentary um, began to emerge as a form of legal inquiry. But it was also the key way in which legal education um, progressed in that period. So, in other words, like a lecture, for example, the lectura, the reading of the book, would read the, the textura, the centre page, and then there would be the readings of the commentaries around that. Um, so that the, the, the lecture was an exploration of a central text there. Now, um, that's exactly, of course, what lawyers did in, in, in that period. They, they practised with glosses as well. In other words, there was a close adjacency between legal education methods and professional practice methods as well. And also the, the methods of scholars who were working um, on the Justinianic texts, the canon law codes and so on. And we've lost that. Um, and I'm trying in a, in a sense to, to bring 
legal education back into jurisprudence, as it were, and say this is where they are jurisprudential um, analysis. And I'm doing so uh, from a, a quite open um, viewpoint, namely uh, legal realism um, and pragmatism. And in a sense, my uh, thought experiment was to recreate what Paul Maharg, standing in Voltaire and Brousseau in 1996, what would he have said about, about this sort of thing? And so I was trying to reconstruct a legal realist view of legal education um, and, and using uh, in a kind of inverse of the usual uh, legal textbook, you know, uh, we state the law at, you know, um, 1st of February 2023. Um, I, I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to use text any further um, forward um, than um, Burke's uh, publication point. And so, uh, in a sense, what I'm trying to do is to reconstruct legal education as jurisprudence, in a word, or three. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. It's really, it's really fascinating. Um, so we're not going to have time to talk about all of the chapters in the book, which means that listeners are just going to go out, have to go and read it because it is such a brilliant and enriching book. Um, but just to sort of bring it together, I just want to pose a question to all of you. The last chapter of the book is titled What is the Law School for in a Post-Pandemic World? And of course, the sort of head, head title of your book is What is Legal Education For? So just to sort of bring all of the points together that we've talked about today, what is law school for in a post-pandemic world? Uh, I think the point of the book is that we still don't know. <laughs> um, we we deliber deliberately left it open for interpretation and, mm -hmm. well, I think felt that we weren't the people to make that solid conclusion because... Mm -hmm the law school is different for a lot of different people and serves different purposes uh, in, at any one time. And like we said at the start, you know, the, the landscape of higher education and legal education in particular is changing so fast and so continuously. And we're constantly in a bit of a state of flux, like Paul said, you know, we, we just kind of live with uncertainty and change at the moment. So, I would be hesitant, hesitant personally to say what I think the law school is for, because that could change in the next few years, really. I, I would kind of agree with that. And I would add that um, in terms of, uh, you know, what the book, I think, is trying to do is get educators to challenge any assumptions or, or views that they're working on and really interrogate um, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and who they're doing it for, um, and to to not necessarily just do what they've always done because you know that's how they were taught or, or that's what they're used to doing. So, I think the idea of the book is to, um, or one of the things I hope to do with the book is to really stimulate those discussions and get us critiquing what we do and why, um, without being. Uh, I suppose, uh, without suggesting there is a, a really simple answer to these questions, which have been, um, you know, rumbling on since since law school was first established, essentially. Um, and if Paul wants to come in and, and add. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, to, uh, to that, I would add just very briefly that um, I think diversity, which is something Rachel had touched on as well, um, diversity in so many ways. Um, I think I, I, I also think that uh, law schools have to be much more determinately 
interdisciplinary, not multidisciplinary, but actually truly interdisciplinary than they have before, um, which means working and bringing in um, people from other disciplines um, in order to design courses, design programs and so on. I think also justice is a focus is one of the really critical things that we need to we need to focus on for the future rather than law and it's working out. Um, I think we need to go beyond that stage to a, a much more um, global sense of what justice is about because many of the issues are uh, global in their um, facing us in their uh, in their ramifications. And I think also the place of students is still uncertain in law schools, uh, even more so because they become consumers and we treat them as consumers as well. And that is wrong in so many ways. Um, I think, for example, the, uh, the, the uh, National Student Survey encourages that. Um, I think that the, the whole um, rationale uh, and bent of government policy uh, is from Labour onwards, you know, and uh, uh, it, uh, with, with fees and so on, um, basically is, uh, is uh, supporting that. And we need to, to, to rethink um, how we can um, reconstruct students as co-learners, co-researchers um, within the university um, so that um, they become um, not only apprentices, as it were, in intellectual um, knowledge, uh, intellectual uh, endeavor, um, but they actually begin to learn what it is to be ethical in whatever they do afterwards as well. And the place of ethics, I think, in law school has to be um, rethought as well. And that comes out in a number of chapters in the book. Yeah, yeah. and I think just following on from what Paul said, I, that's what I meant earlier, I think, in terms of sometimes what students want from it is, is not always what is actually best for them in terms of yeah. the kind of, graduate we want them to be and the kind of person we want to send out into the the legal world or otherwise when they complete their degree but now universities are just under so much pressure to get good NSS scores get good TEF um, have good employability rates that we're pulled in so many different directions and as a result of that legal education is just very different to what it was when we were all students yeah, but, you know, we can take our example from other jurisdictions in the US, mm -hmm. for example, um, uh, the uh, the league tables, as it were, for universities there, um, and sorry, law schools there, um, have been roundly rejected by a growing number of law schools. Um, mm. They're simply not taking part in um, mm. the uh, in, in the kind of... Uh, ridiculous parade of law mm -hmm. schools in some kind of a tier, three tier, four tier mm -hmm. structure and so on. And I think we just simply have to refuse to take part in those sorts of things. I know it's fairly radical and, you know, deans would probably throw their hands up in horror at the very idea, but, you know, we, we really do need to begin to form a collective um, law school um, response against this, against the sorts of um, pressures um, that uh, forces down that path. Yeah.
Yeah, thank you. I think that's a brilliant note to sort of conclude on. You know, you've opened so many questions and asked for reflection and this idea of, you know, this really radical idea that I think really gives um, gives a lot of food for thought and a place to move forward from. Um, so just before you go, all of you, I've taken up a lot of your time, but the traditional last book, last question for New Books Network is what are you working on now? Well, Rachel, what are you working on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, Rachel and I have been working on something together actually so um, one of the the themes that that comes out in in the book or one of the things that is mentioned is the uh, the fact that um, at least on the face of it a lot of law degrees look quite similar um, so this is this is a theme picked up on and Rachel touched on before certainly in England and Wales at least a theoretical opportunity to to be more innovative because this concept of the qualifying law degree is, is being removed um, so our research at the minute is we're looking at um, university websites in England and Wales and trying to assess to what extent this regulatory change has has actually resulted in changes to the curriculum at this point in time, whether there's been any move away from the QLD subjects and, and innovation. Um, essentially, uh, somewhat unsurprisingly, there doesn't appear to have been a radical change yet, but we're in, we're in the process of, of analysing and, and, and writing that up. And that's something that we'll need to revisit as time goes on um to see yeah. you know, in the fullness of time how that's bedded in yeah thank you and uh i'm working on three projects at the moment i'm writing an advanced introduction to legal education for edward elgar um <clears throat> in their advanced intro um series um i'm also writing uh i'm co-editing a book with um uh, uh, another person, uh, Angela Jensen, who is a lawyer in Toronto, and she worked with me when I was um, at uh, in Osgood Hall Law School um, on simulated clients and how they how they can be used in the law school. The project's been ongoing since about 2016. There's been a few publications, and now we're pulling together an international um, collection of. Uh, uses of simulated clients in law schools. And the third project um, is with uh, uh, my co-project director, Chris McLeod of um, Manchester Law School. And it's called LENA, uh, which is legal education across the North Atlantic. And what we're doing is looking at um, how legal education actually functions in micro or very small jurisdictions. And our examples are going from uh, west to east, uh, Nova Scotia, um, Greenland, uh, Iceland, um, Faroes, um, probably Norway, certainly uh, Scotland, uh, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland. So nine jurisdictions effectively. Um, and um, we're bringing them to bringing representatives together, and out of that will come a book. Um, we've hardly ever looked at how legal education functions in really tiny jurisdictions like Faroes, you know, or slightly larger ones like Scotland or Norway. And uh, just to even bring people together to discuss how they do things in these kind of cultures, and in the culture of the North Atlantic arc mm -hmm. as well, um, could be really interesting. So I'm really looking forward to that. If you need uh, assistance, 
Paul to go to all these places and, and do some work for you. I, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the thing is that uh, I think what we would love to do as well is get some small jurisdictions from um, from other places like the Caribbean or the South mm-hmm. Pacific or whatever, places that are maybe have slightly less rain and warmer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perhaps that can be the next project. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you all so much for your time. Um, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Dr. Rachel Dunn, Professor Mark, and Dr. Victoria Roper. They're the editors of What is Legal Education For? Reassessing the Purposes of Early 21st Century Learning and Law Schools. It was published by Rootledge in 2022. You've been listening to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>